Lord Jesus, as we come to the holy ground at the foot of your cross, and seek to comprehend what it is that happened there we pray that you would be with us by the power of your Holy Spirit whom you have given raised in glory and we ask it for your own great name's sake Amen Today we talk about death and in talking about death we talk about life for it is the uniquely Christian conviction that life only comes through death. Death is an almost unremittingly depressing experience. I haven't been closely touched by death so far in my life, although it will surely happen. But I've seen two members of my extended family die relatively slowly of cancer. And seeing them lying in the bed as the life slowly drains out of their bodies... And eventually all that's left is the faint puff in their cheeks until unnoticed even that stops. Here death is a victor, a champion, a great defeater of all people. People like you in the prime of their lives, full of vigour and vitality, even we will succumb to death. It is the great enemy. And it is to go into battle against this greatest of all enemies that our champion, our Messiah, our King, has ridden into Jerusalem on his mighty steed, his donkey. Matthew chapters 26 and 27 depict and define the reality and significance of this death in which death itself died. Pick it up at chapter 26 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Right there you have the two key poles around which we'll operate today. Although there's lots that we could say about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and the similar but different betrayal of Jesus by Peter. There's much we could say about the intensity of the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest and the mock trials Our focus will be the two things that Matthew mentions here. The significance of the association with the Passover and the events of the crucifixion itself. Firstly then, the Last Supper. The key to understanding Jesus' death is the act... uh, Sorry, is the fact that it didn't occur at any old time. March the 25th is a special day to me. Uh, It's when a crazy girl promised to stick with me uh, to one of us died, uh, we got married. But that, frankly, could have happened on June the 18th or my birthday, April the 12th, in case you'd like to put that down in your diary for next year. <laughs> it, it could have happened on any day. Not Jesus' death. Not Jesus' death. It was quite specifically timed to coincide with a highly significant and symbolic Jewish festival, the Passover. Four times in three verses. Matthew 26, verses 17 to 19. Four times Matthew mentions the fact, just in case you missed it the first three times. So what was the Passover all about? The Passover celebrated the Exodus, the time when God delivered his people from Egypt, the founding of the nation of Israel, a bit like America's Independence Day, the celebration of that occasion.
occasion was with a meal and curiously it's a particularly distasteful meal. Uh, lamb was served that had been slaughtered. Bitter herbs were used which symbolised the bitterness of their slavery. Special bread was eaten. The unleavened bread without yeast or leaven in it so that it's flat and crispy, a bit like a you know crosscut uh, or a wafer rather than light and, and puffy like good bread. <laughs> symbolising the fact that they had no time to wait for the bread to rise and that they had to flee with haste. And, and as the Passover was celebrated year by year, there was a structure to the evening. And frankly, as a, as a father and you know head of the household and all that kind of stuff, I can really imagine myself getting into. Uh, the youngest child would ask questions and the father would answer. So, Dad, why are we having lamb tonight? Well, son, it's like this. So, Dad, why are we having all these bitter herbs? Well, son, it was bitter under the Egyptians. And so on and so on. Now I said that this uh, festival, this feast, uh, it remembered and enacted and participated in the great defining moment of Israel, the exodus out of Egypt. And they gave thanks for that past when a strong man held them captive and in bondage and God came and rescued them and brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey full of the blessing of life where they would be obedient to him. But they didn't just remember the past. This festival evoked hope for the future as well. That God would again rescue them from bondage, now from under the Romans, and redeem his people and bring them out of slavery, a new exodus with new life under God's rule. In other words, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. When God ruled his people who are obedient and his world which receives him. And what Jesus is saying by timing his entrance to Jerusalem and this last supper at the point of the Passover is that all of that is happening in me and specifically in my death. He takes that Passover meal with all its significance and meaning and gives it a new meaning, a new significance which focuses around his death, a new redemption a new exodus, a new defeat, but this time of the real enemy. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice three things about this incredibly significant moment as Jesus takes time with his disciples. He speaks firstly of his Father's kingdom. That the point here is not so much how long it will be till Jesus has this sort of food and drink again. Uh, kind of like a hunger striker. Uh, I won't eat and drink until such and such demands are met. Rather the point is how short it will be until the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because that is precisely what he's doing in his death. Of course it points forward to that time of the great last supper when God and man at table are sat down. 
the great feast in the kingdom when it's finally all over and the last enemy is finally and utterly defeated when Jesus will drink again in the kingdom of God. But I think the real focus here is on the kingdom which has drawn near in him. But at least the second point, you see, for he says the bread is his body. Bread which is torn apart, which is broken into pieces. And like bread, his body, his broken body, his death, will become a source of life for his disciples, which they are to eat, to, to actually take it into them, that it become part of them. And likewise, thirdly, the wine is the blood, he says, his own blood, the blood of the covenant, or perhaps the blood of the new covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And again, which they are to drink and to take into themselves to participate in. Now that that section is loaded with Old Testament echoes. Firstly, there's echoes of the Old Covenant in blood. Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 to 8. After the Exodus, uh, when Israel made an agreement or a, a, a pact, a covenant with God and God with Israel, it was, it was solemnized, it was made binding and formal by sacrificing an animal and sprinkling blood on the people. Verse 7 of Exodus chapter 24, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now I'll tell you what, if you were there then, you'd know you're alive, wouldn't you? Imagine someone coming bursting in through the lecture theatre here. Actually, I was pretty keen to try this. And what's more, it would match the seats. And so that would be okay. <laughs> kind of sploshing fresh, hot blood around and it would hit your skin on your forehead and, and it would burn a little bit and you just kind of wonder... Wow, that's pretty serious. Or, he's a maniac. (laughs) This blood of the covenant guaranteed their relationship with God, saying in effect that both parties would rather die and spill their blood than break faith with one another. And what Jesus is saying is that his blood is the blood of the new covenant, guaranteeing a new relationship with God. That brings up the second Old Testament reference, which is the covenant, the new covenant, which is a covenant of forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Here is a new relationship with a new work by God giving a new heart to his people 
so that people obey him from the heart and receive the forgiveness of sin so that God remembers their sin no more. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. And finally, these two thoughts are brought together in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 12. Which of course, if you remember back to our first talk a couple of weeks ago, is where this longest week of Jesus began. It's Zechariah 9 that has the riding on a donkey of the coming king bit. The promise of when God turns up to rescue his people as a king, establishing his kingdom triumphant and victorious, yet lowly and humble, defeating Israel's enemies, bringing her out of slavery and ending her exile. And how will he do that in Zechariah chapter 9? Well, verse 11, because of the blood of my covenant with you, writes uh, Zechariah speaking for God, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is Jesus' interpretation in advance of his own death. This is his understanding. This takes us to the heart of the Christian gospel. You see, what has Jesus' death, his body and his blood, got to do with the kingdom of God? How do his body and blood form and constitute a victory for God? Because that's what this is about, isn't it? The kingdom. Jesus establishes God's reign by overthrowing the reign of the usurper. We know that this is a battle not against flesh and blood. And Jesus establishes the kingdom by defeating the Satan. His power is in sin and the consequences that it brings. Death. Dragging people down with himself. And Jesus is saying in his death, he defeats all of that. He rescues people from Satan's power by delivering them from the consequences of their sins and providing for forgiveness and a new heart set towards God. Jesus' death is a deliberate death. His body given for you. His blood poured out for you. He knew precisely what was happening and in fact does it deliberately the completion of his work of bringing in the kingdom. His death is the defining moment when he seals a new relationship, a new pact, a new covenant with God's people. And what we see symbolised here in the Last Supper, we see enacted in the crucifixion itself, which centre around those haunting words of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a young believer, I heard one of the great Christian teachers at the time say that these words of Jesus constituted both the greatest challenge and the greatest comfort for the Christian. That if you didn't understand them, well, then you didn't understand anything. But when you did understand them, you understood everything. To be honest, I found that a bit distressing at the time because I didn't have a clue, actually, what they meant, or even that they were important. And so that was fairly motivating, and I rolled up my sleeves and got stuck into trying to understand them. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Baptist preacher at the end of the 19th and start of the 20th century, warns us at the other end of the motivational spectrum. 
he, he began a sermon on this, what's been called cry of dereliction, uh, in this way. It's a long quote, uh, but I want, to cap- want you to capture the tone of it. Listen to what he says. If any one of us, lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ, had been anywhere near the cross when he uttered those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am sure our hearts would have burst with anguish. And one thing is certain, we should not, so we should have heard the tones of that dying cry as long as ever we lived. There is no doubt that at certain times they would come to us again, ringing shrill and clear through the thick darkness. We would remember just how they were uttered and the emphasis where it was placed. And I have no doubt that we would turn that text over and over and over in our minds. But there is one thing I think we should never have done if we had heard it, and therefore I'm not going to do it, he says, we would never preach from it. It would have been too painful a recollection for us ever to have used it as a text. No, we would have said, it is enough to hear it. Fully understand it, who can? And to expound it, since some measure of understanding might be necessary to the exposition, that surely were a futile attempt. We would have laid that by. We would have put those words away as too sacred, too solemn, except for silent reflection and quiet, reverent adoration. He says, I felt when I read those words again, as I have often read them, that they seemed to say to me, you cannot preach from us. And on the other hand, felt as Moses did when he put off his shoe from his foot in the presence of the burning bush, because the place whereon he stood was holy ground. He sums up, Now as I have said, every word requires more emphasis than I can throw into it, and some part of the text will be quite sure to be left and not dealt with as it should be. Therefore we will not think of preaching upon it, but instead thereof we will sit down and commune with it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is going on? in the depths of the heart of Jesus and the reality of the Father on that dreadful moment on the cross. As we begin our communing, I think these words are deeply troubling to us. Nothing really prepares us for this. Jesus uniquely called God my Father and was addressed uniquely by him with those words, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The fellowship shared between Jesus and the Father was perfect and unbreakable, or so it seemed, until those dreadful words fall from his lips. What's more, this is a a bad death. Socrates died as a wise man, calmly and cheerfully. He drank the hemlock, his own personal demonstration of the immortality of the soul, a breakthrough to a higher, purer life. He had a rooster sacrificed to the god Asclepius, which was only done apparently on recovery from a severe illness. The death of Socrates was a festival of freedom. It was a good death. The Jewish martyrs who were crucified under unsuccessful revolts against the Roman died conscious of their righteousness in the sight of God and looked forward to their resurrection to eternal life, just as they looked forward to the resurrection of their lawless enemies to eternal shame. They too died a good death. In our own century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was taken 
uh, as he was taken to the place of his execution, said to his fellow inmates, this is the end, but for me it is the beginning of life. And previously he had written to a friend, our joy is hidden in suffering and our life in death. That too was a good death. But Jesus doesn't die a good death. He dies badly, crying out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, it's such a bad death that some have softened it by trying to make it better and construing it in two opposite ways. On the one hand, noticing that this is a quote from Psalm 22, uh, which begins with this cry, but ends with real joy and trust in God. Some have said that what Jesus really meant was the message of the whole psalm, and that he was actually expressing in this cry a deep confidence in God. One commentator was sufficiently sure of this that he says, and I quote, We may assume that the rest of the psalm repeated in a weak voice was lost in the noise and chaotic atmosphere that accompanied the crucifixion. You know, they just weren't close enough to hear it. I don't think we have any reason to assume that at all. And if Jesus had wanted to allude to the whole psalm by quoting one verse, he could have hardly picked a worse verse to quote. I think the only thing that we can assume is that he means what he says and he says what he means. On the other hand, some say that Jesus was simply mistaken, that he thought that he was forsaken by God, but in fact he was not. One writer put it this way, quote, I have sometimes thought that there was never an utterance that reveals more amazingly the distance between feeling and fact. On this view, Jesus may have felt God forsaken, but the fact is, he was not. This commentator knew better than Jesus. Uh, Even more sharply, some say that what we see here is frankly a loss of faith on the part of Jesus, that whatever God was actually doing, Jesus had just got to the end of his tether and had given up the faith. But again, this is what I do. Never was Jesus' faith stronger. He still cries out to God in his time of need. He still calls him, my God, my God. In fact, he means what he says, of course, that his God, his God, still his God somehow, has mysteriously forsaken him. Now, as we approach the cross, aware of what Jesus had said in the Last Supper, of his body and his blood as those which were given for the life of the disciples, we need to take with dreadful seriousness this next step, that it constituted real abandonment of Jesus by God on the cross. What's more, this is fundamentally and primarily an event, an action, rather than a revelation. That is to say, something is done here, rather than something is shown to us here. Or more accurately, something is done here and therefore in that action is something revealed to us. This word of Jesus expresses what at its heart the cross of Christ does and only subsequently what it shows. The reason I labour that uh, is that you can find those who would romanticise this dreadful death. 
a 1999 issue of Newsweek has Jesus on the cover with the caption, 2,000 years of Jesus. And in discussing the significance of his life and death, indicated that the agony of his crucifixion was a symbol of the redemptive power of suffering. A crucially relevant theme at the end of the century with more suffering in it than ever. But as American author Flannery O'Connor crudely put it, if it's a symbol, if that's all it is, a symbol of the power of redemptive, the redemptive power of suffering, she says, I say to hell with it. To hell with it. Well, how do we get a grip on what is happening here on the cross itself for Jesus? I think the immediate context gives us the clues. Notice there are four, four events which surround the cry. First, there is the darkness, chapter 27 and verse 45. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Secondly, there is the misunderstanding of Jesus' words as calling on Elijah, verse 47. When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with, uh, with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Third, the tearing of the temple curtain, verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then, particularly for Matthew, the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. And finally, the reaction of the Roman guard. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what had taken place, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was God's son. The first and third of these things lead us into what is happening, the second and fourth into what is revealed. For three hours darkness comes over the whole land. We're not told much more than that and we can't really speculate on whether it's a natural weather event like an eclipse or a sandstorm as some suggest, in which case it's a miracle of timing, or whether it's what you might accidentally call an ordinary cosmic miracle. Either way, what matters is its meaning, not its science. Darkness is of course a theme with a rich history in the Old Testament. In the first place, it marks the beginning of creation when the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Darkness is the prelude to creation, just as here it is the prelude to the new creation. At the same time, darkness is what makes the day of the Lord, a day of judgment and punishment. Check out these texts, Zephaniah, an under-read book of the Old Testament, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, the great day of the Lord will be a day of ruin and devastation of darkness and gloom Joel chapter 2 and verse 1 the day of the Lord is coming, it is near a day of darkness and gloom Amos chapter 8 and verse 9 on that day says the Lord God I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight I'll make it like morning for an only sun the end of it like a bitter day. And at the end of the three hours of darkness, Jesus cries in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness that had invaded the whole earth, the darkness of the day of the Lord, that great and terrible day of judgment, 
that darkness has penetrated into the heart of Jesus. But there's a second half to it as well. Several kilometres away, the the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And this is exactly the crucial moment at which to mention that fact. The temple was in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. A series of courtyards within courtyards, each one more and more exclusive in who was permitted entrance. At the heart of that was the holy place, the room where the priests did their work of sacrifice. And at the heart of that was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where only one person, once a year, the high priest, could enter on the Day of Atonement. And the point is that the Holy of Holies was separated off by a curtain. Now, I personally have never flown business uh, or first class in an aeroplane. I have sat, though, in the front row of cattle class. (laughs) And that's a good place to be because there's a lot of legroom and as a person of exceeding height, such as myself, uh, that gives you a bit of room to stretch out and you get an eyeball view of the television which is staring at you 25 centimetres away. <laughs> and just when you're starting to feel good about the whole situation, that uh, you know, you, you, you're at the extra legroom spot, you've got the TV right there, it's all a bit uninterrupted, um, and the, you're preparing for takeoff, the flight attendant walks by through the door into superior person's places. And what does she do when she walks by? She flicks the curtain letting everyone know precisely where they stand. First class, scum. (laughs) And here the curtain is torn in two. The darkness of the judgment of God is born in the heart of Jesus. And then the curtain is torn in two. Access is granted. Exclusion is eliminated. The barrier is removed through judgment. And I said what's more, uh, in Matthew's accounts, the earth-shattering significance of Jesus' death is highlighted by the cracking open of the tombs. The resurrection of the saints who'd fallen asleep. Presumably they hang around for a couple of days in their tombs. After the resurrection they appear in Jerusalem to many. This death is a moment of life. This weakness is the great divine moment of power. Power over the power of the great enemy, the restoration of life in God. The Bible writers grasp at this reality in different ways, but preserve both of these aspects, the darkness and the curtain, the judgment and the access. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made to become sin, to so take to himself the judgment of God that he could be said to have become what was judged. And that is so that we might become the righteousness of God, the curtain torn in immediate and direct access to the true and living God. Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He has borne our sins. He's carried them away as the scapegoat did on that day of atonement. Carried them into the wilderness where God is absent. He's borne them to hell. And again the reflex of this is that we're free from sin. Free from their crippling debt. And the appalling division they create between us and God. Freed and healed so that we can live for righteousness. 
The torment in Jesus' torments was this spiritual reality. The physical pain and degradation of the cross from the flogging that he received to the excruciating pain of the nails, all that is actually underplayed severely by the Bible writers. A TV miniseries would make much more of it. That's because in a real sense, all of that was secondary. Secondary to this spiritual reality. That's what is forefronted. That Jesus suffered the hell of God on the cross. Utterly forsaken by God. So that attached to him, we might never suffer hell. Never be forsaken by God. That is what the cross does. But it also shows us something. The mistake that the bystanders made in thinking that Jesus is crying out to Elijah is not just a piece of comic relief or a stupid error. There's real meaning here. The Old Testament ends, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, with the promise that Elijah will come immediately before the great and terrible day of the Lord as a precursor to the Messiah. And I take it that the guy gives Jesus a drink to help him hang in there to see whether that will happen. Whether Elijah will turn up. But it doesn't happen, does it? Why not? Because Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist, as Jesus said. And that means that the Messiah is already here. That this is already the great and terrible day of the Lord. What's more, the comment of the centurion confirms this. Somehow, hearing the cry of dereliction from Jesus, this dreadful shout of abandonment by God, leads him to say, truly this man was the Son of God. In other words, somehow, this point of forsakenness is at the same time the point of deepest unity between the Son and the Father. The will of the Son is utterly united to the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done, he says. Even if that means drinking the cup to the very dregs. That costs the Son more than we can ever even faintly comprehend, being forsaken by his God. It costs the Father more than we could ever ever faintly comprehend, forsaking his only Son whom he loved, and with whom he was always well pleased. But in the bearing of that cost, in the very act of that abandonment, they are utterly united. It is the Father and the Son united in love. Love for the creation that together through the Spirit they made and together through the Spirit that they are redeeming. There's an old-fashioned word for it. Uh, You sing it occasionally in hymns. Ineffable. Uh, describes uh, this as ineffably sublime, ineffable. It means not to be able to put into words inexpressibly wonderful. That is the character of the love of God on the cross. The God-forsaking God and the God-forsaken God. Truly, this man was God's son. Well, let me conclude. In the context of the darkness and of the curtain, we grope to understand that the forsaking of Jesus does something. It is Jesus in our place 
the place of judgment, opening the door to God. And in the context of the wine and the centurion, we grope to understand that this doing is the doing of the Father and the Son in a perfect and unbroken unity. That what happened on the cross is primarily something between the Father and the Son. That never were they more united than when the Father forsook the Son. That never was the Father closer by than when he abandoned the Son. As Spurgeon said, this is a matter for silent reflection and quiet, reverent adoration. We need to draw four quick conclusions. Firstly, the love of Jesus. What is ironic throughout the crucifixion is that the Jewish leaders think that they have won, having clearly demonstrated that Jesus could not be the Messiah since he doesn't save himself. Save yourself. You saved others, they say. Of course, we know from Jesus' perspective that he has won, that he is the Messiah, the one who saves others, precisely because he does not save himself. (coughs) Similarly, the soldiers think that he's a loser. If he's the king of the Jews, as the titulus or the sign above his head proclaims, then let him save himself. But again, we know that Jesus is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, precisely because he doesn't save himself. Just, just ponder that for a moment. Think about it. Actually try and enter into that. Jesus had cured people of incurable diseases. He had walked on water. He had raised people from the dead for crying out loud. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to jump down out of that, off that cross and to stroll out of that city. But he didn't. He didn't, not because he couldn't, but because he wouldn't. He didn't because he didn't want to. He knew it was too important in God's plans. For in saving himself, he would be damning the world. And so he hangs there, deliberately, triumphantly, royally. He didn't because he loves. Because he loves you. Know that love of Jesus, won't you? Don't go past a text like this and not know the love of Jesus, will you? Never doubt it. Never let the circumstances of your life, however dark they might become, obscure the love of Jesus for you. It is written in hardwood there on the cross. Secondly, in relation to the achievement of the cross, I think that many of us live with a dull sense that God is vaguely dissatisfied with us. That the death of Jesus got things off to a good start, but the reality is that since the beginning, things have been downhill from there and that we are sadly short of the mark. I detect that in myself sometimes. Frankly, that is blasphemous. To say that is to say that the blood of Jesus which was given for you, the body of Jesus which was broken for you, the God-forsakenness which Jesus endured was only moderately effective. A good start by which you might creep into the corner of God's presence but not much more. From this we need to repent and look to Jesus and know that whatever we feel His forsakenness, his bearing of the judgment of God is our acceptance, our bearing of the delight of God.
Of course, the third thing follows directly from that. If, if all this is true, if all this is true, and it all hinges on next week, right? If all this is true, nothing matters more than this. For there are only two outcomes to life. Being forsaken by God, His presence withdrawn from you, bearing your own sins all the way to hell, or in Christ having hell born for you, entering the presence of God, what Jesus called eternal life. No distraction would make this worth missing out on, would it? There is no temptation adequate to replace this. Let nothing, nothing come between you and Jesus. It is better to cut your hand off that causes you to sin, pluck your eye out that causes you to sin and enter eternal life maimed for crying out loud than to go whole into hell. Which leads then to the final point. If, if you're not a Christian here today, if you've never really taken Jesus serious, if you've never seen him on the cross, truly, well then nothing less than your conscience is at stake here, is it? The forgiveness of your sins. Christ died for you here, once and for all, to bring you to God. There's no more that you need to do simply to receive his gift. There's no other way to be right with God, not your own goodness or trying. To say that would be to say that his death was simply a waste of time. If you're not a Christian person here this afternoon, can I say, don't muck around with this. Receive Christ. Put your trust in him. Turn to him. Ask for him the forgiveness that God has provided. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you with the fullness of our hearts as we grope to understand in our minds what it was that happened on that day, on that cross. That we give you our hearts in praise and we ask that you would grant to us such a vision of your death and power that we would never let go. And we ask it in your own great name. Amen.